and welcome to the American Patchwork and Quilting Podcast, a podcast aimed at making your quilting life more fun and creative while connecting with quilters just like you. Join the staff of the magazines you love for a great episode filled with tips and tricks. Enjoy! Hi, and welcome to the American Patchwork and Quilting Podcast. I'm Lindsay Mayland, and I'm so excited to be here with you. I'm here with Allison Gam, the designer of Quilts and More magazine, and we're going to be talking about a topic that every quilter should know, how to wash and care for your quilts. We hope these tips help you preserve your quilts for generations to come. Yes, we have some just quick refreshes right off the bat for you if you just want to kind of freshen up your quilts that have been stored for a little while. So the first thing you can do is just air your quilts outside. You know, you can take your quilts outside like once a year on an overcast, dry, windy day to just kind of freshen them up. You can place towels or a mattress pad on a ground and make sure it's dry um, and lay your quilts on top of them. And then you can cover the quilts with bed sheets to prevent debris from falling on them. And you also want to make sure to avoid placing quilts on a clothesline to prevent stress on the seams. Great tips. And this is a great time of year to uh, do that since yes. the weather is nicer. Yeah, out. definitely. The next thing you can do is use a dryer. You can just throw your quilt in the dryer on like a gentle cycle or air dry setting without heat. And that'll just kind of freshen it up a little bit. And then the last quick refresh you can do is just vacuuming your quilt. So you can vacuum both the front and the back to help preserve it and just remove a little bit of dust and dirt that accumulates over time. You can put a nylon hose or some sort of net on the end of your vacuum hose and just gently uh, move the hose over the quilt uh, without touching the quilt because you don't want to, you know, move it around too much. Um, but that will help kind of get, get up some of that grime. I love that, and those are really great tips for if you're, you know, just need to do a little basic cleaning on the quilts, if they maybe have, you know, a little dirt, or if you have pets, there's a little pet hair on it. Yeah. If you need to give your quilts a deep clean, think like the quilts you're, you know, sleeping under, or throw quilts that are on your couch and get a lot of use, you might want to wash your quilt. So we have some tips for how to do that. So if you're washing and drying your quilt by hand, you first of all want to make sure to use a clean tub and put a large towel or like a cotton blanket in the tub to support the quilt and just protect it from, you know, any soap that might be still in there. Um, you want to dissolve the soap totally in the water before you put your quilt in the tub. And, you know, you want to dilute it mm -hmm. before you stick your Definitely. quilt in there. Um, and then you want to gently agitate the quilt when it's in the tub. You don't want to wring or twist it to just release the dirt in the soil and then rinse the quilt and refill the tub as many times as you need to get that soap out. Then you want to just press the excess water out of the quilt. You can use towels to blot up any excess water. And then you just want to lift the quilt out of the tub using that towel or that blanket you put on the bottom so you're not you know, straining the wet seams. And then just lay it flat to dry. You can either do like Allison was talking about before, outdoors, out of direct sunlight, and just like air dry. If you want to dry it, and wash it by machine, you want to make sure that you're using a dye magnet such as the color catcher to absorb any excess fabric dye. I always use a color catcher mm -hmm. when I wash my me quilts, too. no matter how many times I've washed them just to be extra safe. You want to wash your quilts in cold water with a gentle soap on the gentle cycle and then dry in the dryer on the gentle cycle and, or an air dry setting without heat to really make sure that you're not damaging anything. Yes. So, you know, we take all this time to wash and clean our quilts, um, 
but of course we all have to figure out how to store our quilts. So here are some tips that we have for making sure you're storing your quilts properly. So there are a few key things you want to look out for. Um, the first being light. So fluorescent lights and ultraviolet radiation from sunlight can cause some of the dyes in the fabric to fade and some of the fibers might become brittle over time. So you want to make sure you're rotating your projects pretty frequently to avoid damage from light exposure. Um, and you want to make sure that projects are not stored in an area that are ex exposed to direct sunlight and this will help prevent, you know, the kind of wear and tear on your dyes in fabrics. Yeah, this is especially important for quilts that you are hanging in your house. You want to make sure that you're switching those out, um, you know, seasonally just to make sure that one quilt isn't always in the same source of sunlight for years at a time because that will really cause fading. Right. Um, and, you know, sometimes you might come across antique quilts and one big patch of it is faded. Well, that's probably from always being in the same folded position. Exactly. That brings us to our next point is folds and creases. So, you know, when you're storing your projects for a long time, you're going to fold it one way and just put it away. While after a while being folded in the same position, the fibers along the folds begin to weaken. And then that's where you can get permanent creases, which obviously we don't want. So it's a good idea to refold your fabrics and quilts periodically to keep that from happening. And a great idea is to roll your quilt rather than fold it because then you won't get those harsh creases. Um, so the next thing we're going to talk about is acid. So paper, cardboard, plastics, and unfinished wooden shelves, drawers, and trunks release acid, which can damage your fabrics. So you want to prevent your projects from coming in contact with those surfaces by rolling them in some acid-free tissue paper um, or storing them in acid-free boxes or white cotton pillowcases. Um, and then the last thing is watching out for mold and mildew. So mold and mildew flourish in warm, moist environments, so projects shut in closed containers or wrapped in plastic are stored in areas of temperature extremes and excess moisture. Um, so like attics and basements and garages, they're susceptible to growth of fungus. So you want to make sure you're storing your quilts in cool, dry locations. Again, you can wrap them in pillowcases, and this allows air to pass through the projects and let them breathe a little bit. Yep, and an extra tip, if you have an unused bed in your space, like a spare bedroom, that's a really great spot for storing your quilts. You can spread out all your quilts on the bed, and you can just separate them with like layers of cotton fabric or sheets or batting just to prevent any dye transfer. But it's a really easy way to keep your quilts flat and store them, and they look nice on the bed. <laughs> yes, definitely. Except when you have company, you're going to have to move all those quilts <laughs> off or they'll be really, really warm when they stay yes. with you. <laughs> Thanks so much for sharing these tips, Allison. Yeah, I hope uh, everyone has success in taking care of their quilts. We'll be back after this quick ad break. Welcome to Getting Social with Jess. I'm your host, Jess Ziegler, and this week I'm so proud to bring you a interview that I adored. I love Sean Kimber way more now than I even did before. Her work can be found on Instagram at Koshi Complete, and Koshi is spelled C-A-U-C-H-Y, and she also blogs at Completely Koshi. So look for links in our show notes so that you can see the work that we reference in the interview. She's also displaying her work at 
Lafayette College at a gallery. Uh, the show is called Cottony Non. It has been extended by popular audience demand to run until August 3rd. So Lafayette is located in eastern Pennsylvania. Actually, it's called Easton, and it's very close to the New Jersey border. So if you're in the area, or even if you're not, and you can possibly get there, get there. It would be amazing to take in the show in person. And one other thing, as a true podcast nerd, I listen to podcasts all of the time. It feels like I'm in the club now because I need to apologize for the audio quality. I think what happened is that my iMac actually picked up my sounds instead of my microphone, and that's totally my fault. So I thought on my end it sounded a little echoey, um, but of course I did not want anything to be taken away from Sean or this episode, so I just wanted to mention that total rookie mistake, but I'm learning, and thank you for being along for the journey. Okay. Well, welcome Sean Kimber to the show. Thank you for being here. One of the reasons I was super excited to talk to you and now is because your gallery show that's open right now at Lafayette College. I wonder if you would give our listeners a short background, who you are, what you do professionally, and a little bit of your quilting past. So as my day job, I'm a math professor. I applied for tenure. I was super out of control because like I didn't know how things were going to go and so I started quilting as just this place where I could meditate and really relax into something and at first I was making really super traditional quilts but it kind of transitioned into this more political more personal sort of mode of expression and so the show that's there now are quilts from the last three to four years so I think that they are kind of representing the height of this exploration of self-identity difference and social justice issues that are quite current and they turn out to be mostly denim so (laughs) that was a question I I was wondering too is that intentional or what makes you gravitate toward denim yeah so my mother's ancestors right of course I'm a black woman I come from a slave past so my mother's ancestors grew indigo in South Carolina and my dad's ancestors grew cotton in Alabama and so it's seems to be kind of a great combination of their backgrounds right and but it's also just the denim the weave of denim means that you see it differently even when you just rotate it right so that so it's actually kind of a more alive fabric than just a straight woven regular quilting cotton and you get just an extreme spectrum of blues just to kind of give yourself a constraint of a color palette is just an amazing thing to do for yourself and so to work only in blues and maybe highlight with a little bit of white here and there is just, or orange, orange is my fave. Um, <laughs> then, uh, you know, it's actually kind of a nice way to make sure that your quilt's always going to work out. I never thought about that. That's really cool. That dimension of denim is different. And also I'm thinking about how when you work improvisationally, it's mm-hmm. good to sort of limit your choices, you know, give yourself some sort of constraints. I think that's a really interesting way to look at it too. Very cool. Would you mind telling us about maybe one of your most recent quilts that's being exhibited right now? Sure. So it's hard to pick one because they're all, so at the reception, people kept asking me which was my favorite. And of course, they're all your babies. Um, Probably my most recent finish that happened like just a few weeks ago. The title is I Am Still Not. And it is a poem. 
and its ending line is, I am still not free. And it's just something that came to me as I was sort of experiencing both my life as a professor in a male-dominated profession and how people view me. So not only my students and my colleagues, but when I go to math conferences, I often (laughs) feel not good at all about, you know, the environment, the uh, climate for inclusion, other things that really kind of mean that I feel like I should be invisible in order to survive in the space. And that truly is how I have survived, I believe. And that indicates something about my freedom to be a full human being. Yeah, I really appreciate how you bring your lived experience and your truth to your quilting. And I feel like, you know, we're all coming from our own perception and our own upbringing and and our own experiences. And I feel like there's been, even just as a woman, this virtue of not taking up space, not causing any waves, not inviting any controversy. Yeah, there's some virtue, at least, that I've assigned to just being small and compliant and quiet and just, you know, not ruffling any feathers and, and that sort of thing. So from a personal perspective, I'm wondering if that is something that you've had to grow into. Absolutely. So I'm Southern. (laughs) So that comes with its own list of rules and expectations for what a woman ought to be. But then also there's some subjugation based on race, of course. Um, So I learned a whole different set of rules about how to survive in society as a Black woman. Those rules also, we could go all kinds of directions in this conversation. But um, I would say that I have, you know, worked through that because, you know, I did live kind of as an invisible person for many, many, many years of my life. And I kind of started realizing I needed to break free, that I needed to actually change the environment that I work in, the environment that I live in, in order to actually feel comfortable there and exist as a full human. And that requires, you know, taking down all the barriers, taking the filter off, not only to educate a community about what they are doing that's causing these terrible feelings and, you know, lack of feeling of inclusion, but also to make 100% change to the world, whether it's just exposing some injustice and taking it away from the personal, right? expose some social justice situation to try to amplify voices that are even quieter than my own. I have privilege and there are a lot of people who have a lot less privilege than I do. And so how can I leverage my power and influence to help others? So I hope that makes sense, right? Because, Mm -hmm. but I still kind of go home at the end of the day and worry, worry, worry. Did I say the wrong thing? Or does that person hate me now because I said that thing? And so there's so much more that you have to manage to kind of maintain relationships to maintain that level of influence going forward is just to sort of make sure that we're all still interacting in a humane way (laughs) Um, but you know kind of shaking things up you know growing and evolving right I mean I see what you post on Instagram and I feel like people try to do a good job of being civil and having discourse I feel like you do a really good job of inviting that conversation and they're conversations that need to happen and I really appreciate that about you I'm surprised that (laughs) that it turns out 
because, you know, at least for a little while, it was the case that my audience was more curated. They were people who came, they learned who I am, what I'm saying, and if they were not interested or it was something that offended them, they left. Um, But now I have no idea who's following me, right? There's that contingent is still there, but they're new people every day. And so I'm never sure who's going to show up for the conversation, right? But I am just astounded at sort of the self-regulation that happens in the comments. Um, Every so often I'll delete one or, you know, leap in to kind of take control of the situation. But for the most part, like, my people are good. (laughs) And... And, and willing to engage in conversation. And it just, you know, it just makes my heart grow nine times every time. Yeah, no, I get that. So in addition to like getting your message out and being really brave in these pieces that you're making, you're also a super good quilter. <laughs> I mean, like the technical you can tell in your craft that you take it very seriously when you are at the point where you know, like this piece has to go forward. I'm wondering how you choose to, you know, uh, make that come to fruition I guess through which techniques I mean because you're doing piecing you're doing tiny piecing you're doing foundation piecing sometimes you're doing applique you can do it all how how do you decide (laughs) I can do everything except for free motion quilting so that's a true (laughs) confession up there um (laughs) so I you know are you asking about sort of the design process is that yeah 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 I'm interested in like Yeah, does it, um, when you're sketching, like, do you know immediately which techniques you're going to employ to make this vision? um, Yeah. yeah. I think it's a combination of, uh, so improv, of course, there's not a 100% true vision of what it's going to look like exactly at the end of the day, right? And that's actually part of the thrill of doing it. And so I am more engaged on the level of constraints. So what are the rules I want to work under? Is it that I will only use these three fabrics? And then that actually induces several other decisions, right? Because there's only so much you can do with only three fabrics. Or is it that um, the pineapple, like I am totally committed to the pineapple block. And so then that's a constraint, but it's not completely confining. You can um, stretch them, you can do uh, different color combos and get very different sort of secondary designs that come out of them. So it's, it's almost a mood. Like if I put on a mood ring and it's blue that day, then I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. Uh, I get very little. If I ever expose my sketchbooks to the world, I think people would be just laughing their asses off. Um, <laughs> I am not a um, representational kind of drawer. Mm-hmm. What I do is just, it's a schematic, more of a design. And then at the end of the day, like I know that what I produce actually matches this sketch, but it's enough of the ideas of layout and sort of the mood that I want to make in the patchwork eventually. So I have a process. It doesn't necessarily match up with what a sort of precision culture might be doing. I am more about the process than I am about the product. And so the quilt that I described, I am still not. Like I rushed to finish it so that I would 
go into this show. Um, but I would have very easily made the process last another year because I was just so committed and it was just so much exactly where I needed to be in terms of what my hands were doing, the thoughts I was having about what the patchwork was turning out to be on, a, on the small scale. It's not that I regret finishing it quickly because I'm actually still pretty proud of how it turned out. But oh my goodness, to indulge in those cottons a little bit longer. Oh. So, That's so awesome. I'm going to make another quilt out of the right. same sort of combo and the same rules and we'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah, do you expect that feeling will return? It's possible. And it's also possible that it'll become a slog, right? It'll turn into, oh, I already finished this idea. Mm -hmm. But I think there's still more things to explore in that combination as an artist. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Very good. Well, I, I have a question about how you are making your letters. Are those all improv style? I guess I'm, I'm talking about the pieced letters. Yeah, so they are improvisational. And I learned the concept behind it from Tanya Ricucci, who first posted them on Bonnie Hunter's blog, you know, years and years ago. And then now it's been published in a book called Wordplay Quilts. And the book is out of print, but they're now selling it in a digital format. So anybody can can get it now and she describes this really intuitive approach to you just draw the letter mm -hmm. by hand with a pencil on paper mm -hmm. and then that's just what you do in your PhD <laughs> thing right I mean it's just it's astounding that you need to connect those two ideas in sure. your head because that's what we do in patchwork every day but <laughs> right but to kind of get the feel for even just making the letter e then you have all the skills you need to make all the other letters it's amazing because everybody comes out with different handwriting. Yeah, I, I love your um, handwriting. As a quilter, do you have any um, tips or anything for our audience? Any tools that you like for hand quilting? Or how did you jump in and figure that out? Yeah, so I learned quilting from Quilting for Dummies. Like, really? People be surprised to learn that. And so I just did everything in that book. And then um, Jenny Byer, J-I-N-N-Y Byer, came out with a book, very gorgeous book about sewing by hand and quilting by hand at around the same time as I started quilting. And I, I learned, you know, the concepts of hand quilting and it's hand quilting using a hoop, but I really don't like doing that process. I prefer not using a hoop and just holding the quilt in my lap. And it's, you know, again, it's about the process. So you're experiencing, you're under the quilt the whole time you're making it. And um, it's great for the winter um, <laughs> to do it, but it's also, um, there's less strain on your hands as well. So because you're using both hands to kind of make the process work. So I would encourage people to, to try quilting hand quilting without a hoop and also not adhering to anyone's uh, standards about the stitch length and just find out what is normal stitch length for you how are you naturally stitching and just accept that that's also right <laughs> that is so great are you basting it with thread like with big thread stitches to keep the layers together I have actually never done that so I used to be very much committed to spray based and then I read a chemistry journal article about the deterioration effects of using that adhesive um, and so now I, I'm back to safety pins oh 
okay. Yep. Yeah. Good old safety pins. <laughs> yeah. And you just remove enough in the region that you're working on so that the thread doesn't get stuck on them. So you're good. That makes sense. Okay. okay. And you're teaching as well. Yeah. And, you know, I'm scheduling 2021 now. Um, <laughs> And I'm happy to come anywhere, especially the middle states. I've never kind of visited some of those states. I would love to. I am open to any place, anywhere, anytime. And, you know, it would be really fun. I love meeting quilters. Quilters are awesome. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Totally agreed on that. Um, Thank you for being visible, for helping us understand what your experiences are, inviting the conversation and the willingness to uh, put yourself out there it means a lot to me and I feel like the community is better the more diverse we are I really appreciate what you have done and what you are doing so thank you thank you for that and thank you for talking with me today yeah thank you for inviting me and thanks for saying that that really helps So good, right? One thing that Sean said, the best way to get in touch with her, if you are interested in bringing um, her in to teach a quilting class, is to email her and that um, her email address can be found on her blog or just direct message her through Instagram. Um, And I challenge anyone in the Midwest to bring her in. And if you do, let me know. I'm willing to drive a significant radius. Let's just say that to um, come and take a class from her. That would be so much fun. So thank you for listening. We would love your feedback as we strive to bring you the content that you want. I'd encourage you to let us know by emailing at apqpodcast at meredith.com or direct messaging me and I can be found on Instagram at threaded quilting. I would love to hear what you thought of this interview and I would gladly take suggestions for what you would like to hear in the future. So keep in touch and we look forward to hearing from you. Bye. We'll be back after this quick ad break. I'm here with Joanna, the editor of Quilts and More for Back to Basics, a segment where we share tips and tricks about a sewing tool or technique. Joanna, what are we learning about today? Today we are going to be learning about labels. So I'm so excited because I get to share with all of you two of my favorite quilting tips. I don't know about you, but I'm not always good at remembering to label my quilts. So my first tip is to make the label when you cut your fabrics, and then you can store it with the quilt as you work on the project. This is especially helpful if um, you're like me and you have a lot of UFO or unfinished objects. And um, I tend to start quilts and then put them away. So by the time I get to the label, I don't remember those details or I'm just so happy to be done with the project. I never come back and do the label. So this way you do it in the beginning and it's there with your project. It just lives with your project. And um, again, I just find that if I save it until the end, I'm way more likely to forget. So tip number one, make your label in advance. My second tip is that you don't have to make the label really complicated unless you want to. So I used to make really fancy labels for all of my quilts. I would use inkjet transfers and design them on the computer, print them out. Um, I'd usually embroider them and it became almost a project in and of itself, which is probably why I would never finish them. (laughs) Um, So I've started making simpler labels. I'll take a square of fabric, fold it on the diagonal, and then write on the label using a permanent fabric pen. I can catch those raw edges from that square in my binding. I align it with the corner of the quilt. And then when I'm doing the binding, I can catch that label in there. It makes for a really easy peasy label. And it's 
so much faster. And again, it's it's better to be finished than to be perfect. So yeah, and I, then do you just hand stitch the the top of that? Yes, yes. The stuff that you don't catch in the binding. Exactly. I do sometimes still do the fancy labels though, but it's it's mostly for so, the quilts that have great personal meaning to me. Yeah, the so. special ones deserve special labels. Absolutely. So I hope these tips have been helpful and inspire you to start labeling your quilts. Quilts can last for generations. I know sometimes it's hard to think about how long they can last, but uh, the labels are so helpful in preserving the legacy of your hard work. So don't forget to include pertinent information, such as the maker, the pattern name, the pattern designer, date and place, um, usually where you completed it, but sometimes I like to put when I started it because they're very different. <laughs> uh, care instructions, that's especially helpful if it's a gift. And then also to whom the quilt was given and for what occasion. All great information. Thanks so much for those labeling tips, Joanna. You're welcome. Label those quilts. It's important. Yes. So if you have any topics that you'd love Joanna to explore, please reach out to us at our email, apqpodcast at meredith.com. I'm now joined by Jody, the editor of American Patchwork and Quilting, for a Collector's Corner, a segment where we explore antique quilts and their history. Jody's going to share some tips for shopping for vintage quilts will be so helpful as you're shopping at antique stores and flea markets this summer. Well, I want to talk a little bit about the definition of antique and vintage quilts before we get started. Oftentimes that term, those terms are used interchangeably, but really antique means something that was uh, made more than 100 years ago, and vintage refers to quilts that are 1930 to about 1965. So even though, you know, in the general market we may use the terms interchangeably, if you're collecting quilts, you really do know, need to know the difference between an antique quilt versus a vintage quilt. And there's five tips I want to share with you. First, the first one is I think you need to educate yourself. Um, join groups or guilds that specialize in vintage quilts. So for example, the American Quilt Study Group, which happens to be celebrating its 40th year this year, they have a national convention every year and they include lectures, academic research, auctions, small group discussions. There's also regional groups that have meetings more often. So for example, I belong to the Iowa, Illinois Quilt Study Group, but that actually is for people from Iowa, Illinois, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Arkansas, Colorado, Missouri. We have people come from all over. So regional meetings are open to anybody and they they happen at different times of the year. So check into those. But I think that most regional meetings have some kind of study topic and then they have lots of show and tell. So you're able to see lots of different quilts and time frames and also study topics. The other thing to educate yourself is to go to museum exhibits. So there's a lot of great museums across the country. Some are national, some are smaller, local, regional museums. Some of them have permanent displays of quilts, or maybe they have a rotating exhibit with a special theme. When you go to look at those exhibits, take pictures, make a notebook. But in addition to looking at the quilts and taking pictures, also read the descriptions because almost all of them will have some description that tells you about the time period and maybe a regional use of color or a particular technique. When you're taking pictures of your quilts, also right after it, take a picture of that documentation. So when you go back home and you make copies of your photos, you remember and you learn and you read more about each of those kinds of different quilts. Also, to, to educate yourself, join an online group. So Facebook has a lot of different groups that you can be a part of. Some have pretty strict rules 
um, about what can and cannot be posted. But most of them will welcome newcomers and questions, and they realize that we all started at Newbies at some point. And then a couple of uh, another online thing is to follow hashtags on Instagram, things that include a uh, vintage quilt or antique quilt. When I looked it up recently, vintage quilt had over 31,000 posts of vintage quilts. Now, again, you'll learn that some of these maybe aren't really vintage quilts, but at least that's what people who are posting them at the time think that that's the category that it falls into. So check out those hashtags. The other thing you might want to know is, well, how much should I pay for a quilt? Well, some of the things to consider are condition, the difficulty of the pattern, because a more difficult pattern is probably going to cost more, the age of the quilt, the technique that's used, a hand applique quilt is going to cost you more than something made with nine patches. It's a more difficult technique. Um, also, who made the quilt can affect the cost of something. If it's made by a famous teacher or made by somebody who had it published somewhere, that can also increase the cost or the value of the quilt. Another thing that affects value is the current decorating trends. These are all factors that can then can play into the cost and how much you should pay. So first of all is to educate yourself. Then secondly, take a look at how are you going to use this quilt? Do you intend to display it? Do you tend to use it? For most people, they're probably not going to use an antique or vintage quilt on a daily basis. You're probably going to be displaying it. Do you want it on a wall where you can see the whole thing? Or do you want to just see parts and pieces of it and you're okay if it's rolled up in a basket? That's another consideration when you're getting ready to buy a quilt. Number three, determine your budget. It's very easy to get carried away and spend way more than you intended especially if you're at an online auction site. Now, what you really want to know is, where do I buy vintage and antique quilts? And here's my number four suggestion. Flea markets, garage sales, estate sales, and resale shops are all great options for finding, for finding quilts. The one thing you need to do is to make sure that you open up the quilt so that you get a good view of the whole thing. If you're just using it for display purposes, you might not mind that it has a faded or a torn spot, particularly if it has a discounted price. Now, you can also buy quilts online. I mentioned Facebook before for educating yourself. You also can use Facebook groups for buying and selling quilts. The important thing here is that there are good quality photos so that you can actually examine the condition. Now, the one that people are probably most familiar with is online auction sites like eBay and Etsy. And for most people know what eBay is, Etsy, which is E-T-S-Y, is a site where you can buy handmade items. And the thing I would say about eBay and Etsy is buyer beware. You want to make sure that there are detailed photos and if possible, look at the seller's rating history. Also look for a reputable dealer. Find somebody who's knowledgeable, who's honest, and who's willing to share information with you. Once you find a reputable dealer to work with, they'll find out the kinds of things that you like and also the price point that you're interested in, in purchasing quilts for. My last tip is to let family and friends know that you're interested in collecting old quilts. And finally, buy what you love. I love it. And if you don't already follow Jody on Instagram, you can find her at So More Quilts Mom. She is always posting pictures of her beautiful antique and vintage finds. Thanks so much, Jody. We're ending our show today with reader tips. 
a segment where we share your best advice to common quilting struggles. This week, we'll explore a few tips for choosing and storing thread. Lynette Pisani from Groveland, Massachusetts says, I like to sew with a different color shade of thread in the bobbin. If I have to rip out a seam, I can easily see which is the bobbin thread and which is the top thread. Susan Brown from Fremont, California says, I use empty dental floss containers to store and cut thread when I'm traveling. To repurpose an empty container, I simply remove the empty floss spool and replace it with a bobbin loaded with thread. I wind the thread through the opening to the cutter, then shut the lid on the container. I travel with several of these repurposed dental floss containers, each holding a different color of thread. Kimberly Sutherland from Walla Walla, Washington says, Before I start hand sewing, I like to run my thread across a bar of soap. The soap residue helps keep the thread from tangling and washes out when I'm finished. Marion Morrison from Watertown, New York says, I like to tuck the thread tail back into the spool edge when I'm finished with the thread, but often find it difficult to locate the slit. To remedy that, I mark the slit with a pen or pencil so it stands out for me to see. And our last tip comes from Rosalind Gardner from Clinton, Tennessee. She says, as a golfer and sewer, I use golf tees to pair my bobbins and spools of thread. When I'm done sewing, I place the bobbin on the tee first, then add the spool of thread. Whenever I'm ready to use that spool of thread again, the bobbin is right there, ready to go. These are such great tips. We love hearing these ideas from our readers. If you're interested in submitting your own tip for feature in our magazines or on the podcast, send an email of your tip to apqtips at meredith.com. Hi, all, and thanks for listening. Keep in touch. American Patchwork and Quilting is on Facebook, Pinterest, and Instagram at All People Quilt. Email us at apqpodcast at meredith.com. Resources for this week can be found at allpeoplequilt.com slash podcast. And if you love the American Patchwork and Quilting podcast, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app for free. And don't forget to rate and review the show. It helps other quilters find us. Have a creative week. Thank you.